is Genesis 19, 1 to 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men and the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. <clears throat> then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angel urged Lot, saying, Up. Take your wife and two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife, his two daughters, by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. They brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little one, and my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Thank you. Moral of the story, don't tell Matt you'll take whichever one he wants to give you. Are you ready? Um, uh, quite a few years ago now, almost a decade ago, uh, my cousin-in-law, um, on, my, on, my, on my wife's mom's side of the family, he is, he is training to become a, an Olympian, a discus in particular, um, and he is training incredibly hard to do so, and he is like a monster of a man, just tall and wide and like granite. Um, and um, we're all a little bit jealous. Um, at least I am. Uh, he, he loves to, though, in his spare time, go surfing. And he's actually quite good at it. So he goes down to the Oregon coast and finds some of the more difficult uh, terrain to surf, some of the more difficult waves to go on. And um, one, one particular time, he had finished uh, doing, doing the sport. He had, was just relaxing on the beach with his wife, and somebody came running down the, the side of the beach uh, just saying, my, my, my friend, my friend is going to drown. And he looked, and sure enough, this person didn't know what they were doing. And there was a, a bit of a riptide that had taken them out into the ocean. And she's flailing out there, has no way to get back. So he hops on his board and, and gets out there being physically fit. He can swim pretty quickly, but by the time he gets out there, she's, she's unconscious. So she, he drags her onto the board, and by the time he's got everything kind of figured out, he looks and he figures out there's no way we can actually get back to the safe landing over you know, a bay or two ago. Now we just have to make do with wherever the waves are going to take us. And so he starts surveying the land and realizes that this bay that they're going into is full of rocks. Maybe there's a small space here that I can possibly land and give us a soft landing. And so, and so he paddles kind of towards that spot, but really ultimately is at the mercy of the waves. And, and the, the, the miraculous piece is that he does actually, in, in that space of being thrown around by the waves, manages to safely get this girl and himself to land in this soft spot. And she was saved. And, and, and rescue stories have a way of really um, giving us an optimistic picture. But this rescue story, this rescue story of Lot, gives us more questions than answers. In fact, if we're honest, we culturally hit a lot of the rocks along the way. It's not a soft landing. And as we read the text, we are knocked up against difficult cultural context that asks the question, why? Why is that there? So today, we're just going to look at the rocks. 
We're going to look at the big rocks that are going to knock us about a little bit, that are going to challenge some of our worldviews, that are going to, you know, hit close to home, that are going to actually come close to the heart in some of our circumstances. And I want to say out front, I'm not going to be able to talk about it all. And my intention is not to harm, but to draw attention to the truth of God's word. And I recognize that each one of the why questions that I'm going to ask comes with a mountain of things to talk about. And it's at this point that I should make the joke that if you want to email me, you should email Tyson at central365.org, but I won't do that. My email is jason at central365.org, and I genuinely want to have the conversation with you about where it is that your heart is hurt when you hear what God has to say here. I genuinely want to, want to wrestle with you through what God's word says in difficult spots. And I recognize that sometimes we run into rocks and that hurts. So I, would, I, I embrace having a conversation. If you're new here, I'm so sorry. <laughs> May long weekend apparently is not the weekend to come. So here we go. Why homosexuality, why judgment, and why in the world lot? I mean, why, why is homosexuality used here to show how evil Sodom is? Why, why does God require such, such spectacular judgment on the sin in Sodom? And why does God save a man who readily would give up his daughters instead of his guests? Those are, those are big rocks. So, we'll just dive in and see what happens. Why homosexuality? Now, maybe it's not quite so clear. If you, if you kind of gather what, what's happening here, there's a parallel between what happened in, a, in the ch previous chapter and where Abraham has these three men come to his home and he gives them hospitality. And Lot is sitting at the city gate and he sees these two men coming who were just at Abraham's. And he also gives them hospitality. He says, come, you should stay in my house. And actually he urges them to, knowing kind of what the city is like and knowing what it would be like to sit in the city square. And so... He invites them to his home and he gives them a meager meal. Not the same meal as Abraham, but nonetheless, he is hospitable to these men. He invites them in for protection, for food, and they have a meal of unleavened bread, flattened cakes without yeast. And sure enough, as darkness falls, all of the city comes to Lot's door and starts knocking on the door and said, hey, hey, hey. Uh, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, know is kind of a, it's an ambiguous word. What does, what does know really mean? If, if you look at the Hebrew word, it's the word yada, Y-A-D-A. It's used 943 times in the Old Testament. Only 15 of them are in a sexual sense. So how do we determine what sense the men of Sodom mean no? 
Well, I, I think we have to actually look more at the context than anything else. If, if, if we would kind of go down the rabbit trail of saying, okay, it doesn't mean, it's not the 15 times, it's the however many other times, 900 and, yeah, you do that math. Um, then what we would have to understand is what the men want is they just want to have like, they just want to have a drink with these guys. Like, hey, we saw new guys coming to town. We're just super excited about new people. Let's invite them over. Let's have a beer. Let's get to know them. But I, I, I really struggle with that, with that understanding because it, it escalates pretty quickly, right? Like if, if that was the intention, you'd, you'd think that when Lot said, no, they're my guests, I'm entertaining them, everybody would just kind of disperse. But no, no, no. Now, now they want to say, no, we're going to do worse to you, Lot. Worse. So they knew what they wanted to do wasn't so great. The knowing they wanted wasn't so great. So the other option is to understand it in a sexual way, to understand that what these men actually wanted to do was to homosexually rape these two angels. Big rock. Very big rock. You see, the, the, the challenge here, though, is that we, we have to understand a little bit more closely. Because... There are some who would say, okay, no, 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 okay, we, we see that. But certainly there are other sins that are, that are behind this. It's actually not the homosexuality that's the problem. It's the other purveying sins and, and, and probably the violence side of it. Like it's actually the, the rape portion, the forced portion that we should focus on, not the, not, not, not the act of homosexual sex. So we start to look kind of outside of the Genesis context to see maybe where other biblical authors may have spoken into the sin of Sodom. And we run into Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. Now Ezekiel is speaking to Israel at this point. And he's talking about their idolatry and about their difficulty and about how far they've come from God. And he uses some pretty grindy language if you just scroll back a few verses, um, you kind of get a little bit of a blush going on at how many times Ezekiel calls Israel a whore. Okay, like it's, it's yes, okay, it's there, I can say it, it's there. Okay, but it is, it is, a, like, it is a very difficult passage. And in amongst that, Ezekiel starts to compare Israel to Sodom and say, this is your sister. You're so sinful that the sins of Sodom, the sins of the city that God destroyed with fire and brimstone, that, that, that city, that's, that's your sister. You're so close. So he says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. And you see, at first glance, what we see is that the sins of Sodom were more than just what we see in Genesis 19. It was more than just this one act of 
a night of rage. It was a systemic sin that comes into a culture in where when Lot and Abraham stat, sat on top of a mountain looking because they needed to separate ways, their herds were too big, Lot looked over everything and said, I want to go that way towards Sodom. They are prosperous. Their land looks so good. It looks like, like the land of Eden, like God had intended it. It looks prosperous, and I want to go there. I will succeed there. And that prosperity turned into pride. It turned into gluttony, and it turned into oppressing the poor. And that's what Ezekiel lines out. So some might say, see, do, do, do you see that? Ezekiel, when he's reflecting, when he's looking back at what the sins of Sodom were, it had nothing to do with homosexuality. What it actually had to do with was pride and oppression and gluttony in hospitality. They should have been the ones inviting these angels in. Instead, it's Lot, an outsider. The challenge, though, is verse 50, where it says, they were haughty and did an abomination. You see, when we first read it, we think there's three sins, but if you read it, there's actually four. There's pride, gluttony, oppression, and then an abomination. And this, and this abomination is the language that a that Ezekiel would use. He was, he was a Zadokite priest like this. He held the law in such high esteem. So he's using this language that refers back to Leviticus 18, which, which condemns a, 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 a homosexual relationship, contem, con, condemns a homosexual act. So this this. This word abomination is, is exceedingly clear that it points back to the law and where the sexual immorality that was seen in Sodom included homosexuality. But it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a, uh, a jump to get there ex exegetically. You need to understand all of that. But then, then we can go to Jude chapter 7 in the New Testament, close to the uh, chapter 7, verse 7. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Quite literally, that means pursued other flesh. Instead of pursuing the natural outcome of a man-woman relationship, they pursued other flesh. And what this does is with Jude and with Ezekiel, what we end up seeing is that the biblical narrative places homosexuality, the act of homosexuality, in the realm of sin. And I know that that is not a popular thing to say. But it's, it's really unequivocal Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1, all included as a list of sins that God finds detestable and will judge.
But there's an interesting, or there is an important distinction to make. It is one of many sins. It finds itself in the middle of a list. Not as some super sin or something extraordinary or something that God will judge more harshly. No, no, no. It is just a sin. Like pride, like gluttony, like oppression of the poor, like adultery, like lust. It is just a sin. Yes, it finds itself there, but too often we place too much weight on one particular sin over another. And rightfully so, the church has seen a criticism and where we say, well, you, you, you outline homosexuality, but you never talk about divorce or adultery. It's just as, it's just as prevalent in, in the church as it is outside the church. In fact, Jesus talks more about that than he does about homosexuality. So like, maybe you should take the log out of your own eye first and there's something for us to be, to be said there. It is, just, it is just one of many sins. It's not something to focus on. It is not something to draw attention to. It is simply a sin that defines an orientation away from Christ. Now, I understand that when I say homosexuality is a sin, there may be some people in the room who have family members or maybe themselves are struggling with it, trying to understand what that means or living that lifestyle. And I, I possibly can't touch every facet of it. It's important to understand, though, that there's a difference between action and battling an internal desire. To be same-sex attracted or same-sex active is different. I'd love to have conversations with you about what that looks like. But you know, church, I, I think we need a bit of an exhortation here. I, th I think we need a bit of a reminder. Sometimes as a church, as, as God works in our lives and we start to see the fruit of that Holy Spirit work in us and, and we see our, ourselves struggling against sin and gaining victory over certain things, you know, maybe we used to be, you know, in, enmeshed in porn and now we've, we've found victory over that or maybe we were a chronic liar and we found victory in that or maybe we were a, an abuser and we found a way to seek forgiveness and, 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 we're, and we're becoming more like Jesus. There's, there's this option, there's this propensity to start to look back at those who, who aren't there and start to judge them as if somehow God isn't working in their lives. And, 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 and we start to act like God, bringing judgment upon them and pointing out their sin and being like, you aren't good enough and you are a terrible human being and here's the sin in your life. But but, but can, I, can I say, I think, church, that we need to be less like God and more like Abraham. We need to be more like the man standing on the mountain who looks over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and knows what's happening there and knows the sin and debauchery that's happening there and turns to God and says, Oh Lord, have mercy on them. Jesus, do, do a work in this city. Do something in this city. Pour out your mercy for the sake of the righteous. Open their eyes to the sin in their lives and how it's destroying them. 
Is, is, that, is that your disposition? Is, is that the way that you think about your neighbors? Do you pray, oh, oh Lord, have mercy on them? Jesus, meet them in a new way. If that's through me, if that's through somebody else, God, would you, would you show them the truth of your way and the, and the grace that's in you? Would you please, God, show them through me that you desire for them to know you, that you desire for them to, to, to be free of the shackles of sin and that you want them to, to see the glory of who you are. Oh, Jesus, please do that. I fear too often our disposition is we cross our arms and we sit on our lawn chairs and go, look at all the pagans. Oh, f friends, if, if I can encourage you, let's cultivate a heart of Abraham, one that, one that seeks the good of the city, that seeks God to move in the city, that pleads for mercy so that his goodness can be shown. So then why, why homosexuality? Well, the, the author, though, is, is trying to show how far Sodom had actually fallen. See, if, if you were a Jew reading the, New, or the Old Testament, you would have started with chapter 1, and you would have discovered in chapter 1 that God designed everything, that he created everything from nothing, that it was him who decided the patterns of the sun and the moon that decided which creatures would live in the oceans and which creatures would fly in the sky. He decided where the, where the water would stop and where the land would begin and where the stars would sit in the sky, and he held them there. And then, and then he turned to the Trinitarian self, the Holy Spirit and, 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 the, the, and the Son, and, and they had this internal conversation saying, now let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of, the, of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, from the very beginning, the, 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 the people of Israel, those that read through the word of God, understood that God's designed order was male and female to mirror his likeness. And in Genesis chapter 2 kind of outplays this a little bit more and kind of takes a micro look at, at what happens. And it's really a funny story in that, in that God dis discovers that, it, that Adam is lonely so he's like, hmm, I guess we should find a mate for Adam. So like, omnipotent God who holds the stars in the skies, like, I don't know what I'm doing. So let's just do a parade of animals here, right? So like Adam's standing there and God's like, okay, like the cat? You think the cat? Maybe? Mm, I don't think so. Oh, dogs. It'll be man's best friend. Like maybe that'll be it. No. Ah, Elephant? I really like the neck, but like, but like, I don't think that that works. 
God, God isn't making a point of being like, I don't know what's good for Adam. He's showing, look, I have created something specifically for you. And when Adam wakes up from this, from, from this episode and sees woman, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So, like so much so he just celebrates that somehow this has met that internal need. And then from there, God says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, the, the image-bearing of God is seen in man and woman coming together in one flesh. And we get a picture of who God is and how he creates and his designed order because of that. So the, the, the author in Genesis 19 is simply showing that the sin of humanity, the pride, the oppression, the greed, the homosexuality has so distorted, so twisted these souls that they have, that they have destroyed God's in, initial intention of creation. And so they are justly judged. But then why judgment? I mean, it seems a bit harsh. We want a little bit more of a Nineveh situation. If you're familiar with your Bible, Jonah is a prophet um, in the Old Testament, and God asks him to go to Nineveh, this like pagan city who has oppressed Israel for so long, and tell them to repent. And Jonah's like, no, I don't want to go, because I know you're a merciful God. And if I go tell my enemies that they should repent, they're going to repent and then you're not going to judge them and I don't want that. So he flees the other direction. God's, you, you maybe know the story that he gets on a ship and there's a storm and he jumps off the side of the ship, gets swallowed by a fish and then he finally says, okay, God, I'll go. Now I'm imagining that when, Nin, when Jonah walks into Nineveh, he's not on his A game. He hasn't done 40 hours of sermon prep he hasn't parsed the culture to figure out what he needs. He's going to use the right words. I'm pretty sure he walked into the city center, went, I have a message, God's going to kill you, and walked away. Like, that's, that's kind of what you get. Because then he goes and he sits on a mountain and he crosses his arms and he's like, I knew you would do this, God. Like, I knew you would be merciful. Like, to, to my worst enemies, you would be merciful. Sure enough, God is. Because they repent. Like, that's all they needed. They needed the, like, D game from, from Jonah to hear, oh, yeah, we've been sinning. We should repent and follow God. Like, okay, okay, God, why couldn't you do that in Sodom? It's a legitimate question. Why, 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 why? Why burn Sodom for their sin and save Nineveh with a reluctant prophet for theirs? But you see, I, I think the question, if we really actually dig down to the next level, is that we do want justice. If you have ever been oppressed or victimized, If you found yourself in slavery or the victim of rape, if you find yourself in an abusive relationship, 
You probably, you probably feel with the psalmist in, ten, uh, in Psalm 10 verse 1. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And he goes on in verse 12 to say, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. See, as we sit under oppression, as we sit under suffering, if we are in that space, we are crying out to God, God, would you please save me? Would you bring justice? Would those that have hurt me rightfully receive the consequences of their sin? So what, what, what happens is, is that we say those, those out there should receive judgment for the hurt they've caused me, but oh Lord, please let me be Nineveh for the, for the things that I've done. And if God did not do anything, he would not be just. Oh, but the reason that Sodom is destroyed is because of Genesis 18, verse 20, one of the interesting spaces in Scripture where we get an inside view of God having a conversation with himself, saying, should I, should I let Abraham in on what I'm going to do? Should I let Abraham in on the destruction that I'm going to bring to Sodom? And he says this in verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. God says, I am hearing the outcry of the afflicted. I am hearing the poor and needy who have been oppressed. I am hearing the victims of unimaginable suffering and I will bring justice. I am a God of righteous wrath who will visit that wrath upon those who deserve it. See, the Pharisees didn't get this when they were talking with Jesus. See, they saw the disciples doing some really interesting things in uh, Matthew 15 and where they were eating food before they had cleansed themselves. And the Pharisees were like, whoa, 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 Jesus. Don't you know that like, if you don't cleanse yourself first, you actually ingest evil? And then you become evil. See, they, they had this idea that if the, the evil was out there, sin was out there. And as long as, you, as long as you kept it out there, that was okay, because inside here was clean. And what, what you need to understand is that, is that if you would touch somebody who had sin, then you became sinful, and then you had to clean yourself, and then you were good again. Or if you ate something that was unclean, you had to clean yourself and then you would be good again. And Jesus says, no, 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 you, you got the nature of sin wrong. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 to 20, he says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. That, that, that places me in Sodom. That, that, that places me knocking at the door. That, 
the sin that so easily enters our hearts, that just comes from within us, places us outside of Lot's home with the men wanting to break the door down. See, we, we might not repeat racial jokes, but we don't say much when we hear them. We, we, we might not traffic sex workers, but we watch the porn that does. We might not steal from our neighbors, but we keep and spend money on ourselves we know we could give. See, the reality is, is that this passage should give us two, two real things to hold on to. First, it should instill in us a fear and trepidation of the wrath of God. And we should understand the psalmist again in Psalm 130, verse 3, when he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? God, if, if you would take the thoughts of my heart or the intentions of my heart and the thoughts of my mind and you would portray them on a screen, I would fall flat on my face in shame. And I would deserve the rightful wrath of Sodom. But second, it should give us great comfort because the wrongs that have been committed to you, the sins that have happened, will not go unaccounted for. The hours of tears that you have shed seeking God to understand the difficulty, the road that you have gone through, the suffering that you experience, the oppression that is there will not go unaccounted for. He is a just God who will bring wrath. But the question is, why Lot? Why Lot? Like, I mean, this guy is not a, you know, stalwart example of goodness. Let's go over his track record a little bit. Genesis 19, verse 1. We find that the two angels come to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gates of Sodom. This means that he had risen up in the ranks, and now he was essentially a judge or an, an, a, a, a traitor, someone who was esteemed in the community, someone who had a voice in speaking into what would happen, who would come, who would go, what they would buy, who was right, who was wrong. He's at the gates representing the city. In verse 6, he calls the men of Sodom brothers. These are my kinsmen. And then, in some heinous act, he decides, you know what I'm going to do? These visitors are more important. I'm going to offer up my daughters instead. I just need to make a quick side note here. Like, this is equally condemned in Scripture. It's not like Lot is doing a lesser evil here. Like, well, well, we can't let this happen. Like, this, this homosexual thing is just super terrible. Let's just make it heterosexual rape, and that's totally better. No, no, no. Like, 
Scripture condemns this, period. Right in the same space in Leviticus 18, where homosexuality is condemned, this activity is condemned. It falls under the same space. Lot is no better than the outsider. His, his, his efforts are simply futile. And then finally, and probably most condemningly, we have Genesis 19, verse 6, 16. But he lingered. He has just witnessed the sin of Sodom against his own family. He's been saved by these angels. And now these angels say, we're going to destroy this city. God has commissioned us to come and lay waste to this city. You should leave. And his response is, eh, I'm comfortable. I mean... You're, you're, you're asking me to leave my position of prominence. I've been living here for the better part of two decades. My friends are here. My house is paid off. My daughters are getting married. I mean, have you seen the land around here? It's incredible. My crops are doing great. I can sit at the city gate and I've got, I've got a say. And you want me to leave? I don't know. Like the only reason that Lot is saved is because the angels like physically grab him and drag him out of the city. It's not like Lot is super fantastic here. And yet, and yet we read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. I, I don't, I, this, is, this is mind-blowing to me, at least at first. Peter's talking about what God is doing and who he's judging and who he's saving and this kind of thing. And he says, and if God rescued righteous Lot. Huh? What? I'm sorry, are you reading the same Bible I'm reading, Peter? I don't see any righteousness here. Just skip a few verses down. Read the next space. Like, Lot is not coming off clean here. So why does God save Lot? Why? This man who so embraced the city, who so oriented himself towards the things of the city, to that pride and arrogance and gluttony, to those things. He's, he so oriented himself that way that when an angel explicitly comes and does a miracle in front of him and blinds everybody, he's like, eh, I don't know. Maybe destruction is better than leaving what I know. Well, we, get, we get a hint from Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. So, it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Do you notice there's nothing there about Lot? There's nothing there about his standing there's nothing there about his wrong or right actions. It simply says, God remembered Abraham. And that would be funny, except we've, we've, we've talked about how God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, I will be your God. And I will do these things. And I have made a promise to you. And Abraham's only response, Abraham's only response in Genesis 15, verse 6, was he believed 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know who the only person in Abraham's family who followed him outside of his wife was Lot? Oh, Abraham made a lot of poor decisions, but God was faithful. Lot has made a lot of poor decisions, but God is faithful. God is always true to his promises. So he remembered Abraham and saved Lot, even though Lot deserved all that Sodom got. See, that, that, that should give us great hope. Because this is a picture of what God has done in Christ. The scriptures tell us and place us firmly in Sodom, either as one of the perpetrators or as even Lot himself. Understanding that God is working in the world, but so comfortable, so, so into our own things, so worried about the things that we have or we do or we think. That when God says, you need to do something different, we say, eh, it's comfortable here. Yeah, but look, look at Sodom. I'm, I'm going to destroy it. That, that, that's, what I, that, that's what I do. There is two options. You either follow me as king or one day there will be an eternal damnation that comes upon you because of your sin. And that will be just and right because of the blackness of your heart. But you see, I've, I've created a way. Because it would be unjust for me to just forget your sin. Your sin needs to be paid for. So I did that myself. See, I came in the form of a human. I lived the life you ought to live. And then I died an unjust death because of your sin. Because of the blackness of my heart. And I poured out my wrath on that son, on Christ, so that those sins would not go unpaid for, but that you could walk into my presence clean and holy. So that I would forget whichever of the list of sins you might have committed because it was paid for in Christ. And now you can stand before me. I have rescued you as if through fire because left to yourself, you would have lingered in the city and it would have been burned. God is so good in that he both holds the, the justice of his righteousness in one hand and the mercy of his love in the other hand and says, listen, friends, this is coming but I have made a way. And I don't care what orientation you have. I don't care what sin you've had in the past. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to believe me and I will count it as righteousness. And as your king, I will lead you in the path of righteousness. 
It is an orientation question. Sodom and Gomorrah is an orientation question, but it's not about sexuality. It's about an orientation of the heart. Are you oriented towards Jesus as your king and savior, or are you oriented towards what this world has and what your own heart thinks is best? Oh, I pray that you would see the goodness of Jesus and the mercy of God before you experience his wrath. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. You are good and right and just. And you didn't leave us in our sin, but you gave us a way that we could see you face to face and stand and worship you because of your goodness, your mercy, your love. And you did that by taking a penalty that we ought to take. Well, Jesus, would this, would this, would Genesis 19 show us, would reveal the orientation of our heart? And God, would you open our ears and our minds? Would you soften our hearts? Would you take out that stone and would you put in flesh? And would we call you king? Would we submit our lives to you, God? And in so find your mercy, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.